Good morning, everyone. My name is Joe Lichty. I'm professor of peace, justice, and conflict studies. And it's my pleasure this morning to introduce both the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture, which is an annual affair, and the lecturer for this year, Gerald, uh, Gerald Mast. First, C. Henry. C. Henry Smith was an outstanding, groundbreaking Mennonite historian who taught at Goshen College exactly 100 years ago, from 1908 to 1913, and then had a long run at Bluffton College where he taught from 1913 to 1946. C. Henry established a trust from which GC and Bluffton benefit in a variety of ways, all of them related to peace. There is extra money for peace-related books in the library for many disciplines, extra money for uh, different kinds of peace-related activities, for the peace oratorical contest, um, and, and so on. And since 1975, one of those uh, benefits has been this annual lectureship. Uh, one award per year is granted to a faculty member uh, at a Mennonite college, principally, principally Goshen and Bluffton. And this award has done a lot to stimulate research that might otherwise have been impossible or at least more difficult. And since its introduction, the list of lecturers is distinguished and the topics have been innovative. Which brings us to today's lecturer, Gerald Mast, who is professor of communication at Bluffton University. It seems noteworthy this morning that Gerald got his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, sometimes known as Pitt, which Butler took care of so well on Saturday night in the NCAA tourney. So Hoosier condolences, Gerald, although perhaps not very sincere condolences. Um, in any case, Gerald did his PhD work in the field of rhetoric and communication, which has contributed to the distinctive and valuable voice he has brought to the study of themes in Anabaptist history and theology. Over the past decade, Gerald has been the author, co-author, and co-editor of books like Separation and the Sword in Anabaptist Persuasion, Teaching Peace, Nonviolence, and the Liberal Arts, and the work of Jesus Christ in Anabaptist perspective. Like at least almost certainly some of you in this audience, Gerald was born and raised in Holmes County, Ohio, where his family roots run deep in Amish and conservative Mennonite communities. He is married to Carrie Rothmast. He's the father of two young children, Anna and Jacob, and a third child on the way, he tells me, in just about three weeks. Beyond teaching at Bluffton, Gerald's uh, responsibilities include working as editor of the long-standing book series, uh, Studies in Anabaptist and Mennonite History, and as vice chair of the board for The Mennonite, which is the magazine of Mennonite Church USA. Please join me in welcoming Gerald as he speaks on the theme of true evangelical faith and the gospel of peace. Good morning. It's a delight to be at Goshen College, and I bring greetings from Bluffton University. Uh, Bluffton and Goshen, I think, share much in terms of history and mission, so it's good to be here. Three weeks ago, Sister Helen Prejean, the Catholic sister who is featured in the film Dead Man Walking, spoke at Bluffton University about 
her experiences ministering to death row inmates and the families of crime victims. During that speech, she told us that when we encounter something that is wrong with the world, such as the state-sponsored killing of people convicted of crimes, this should provoke our conscience. She urged us to respond to this call of conscience by taking action, signing petitions, writing letters, visiting those in prison, and using our lives to confront the death house. At the same time, Sister Helen acknowledged that once we start to learn about the extent of injustice and violence and suffering in this world, this knowledge can be overwhelming. We can feel paralyzed, not sure how best to act. We lack confidence that we can make a meaningful difference. Moreover, we are busy people, preoccupied with classes or jobs or family obligations. We may not feel competent in the tasks that seem to be required, such as speaking in public, making phone calls, or organizing people. And when we do act, we make mistakes. We neglect to build or maintain relationships with people who are offended by our actions. We are often blind to the unintended consequences of our decisions, and we struggle to repent and ask forgiveness for trouble we did not intend to make. Despite these reservations about acting in response to the demands of our conscience, Sister Helen called for us to act anyway. Citing Rilke, she insisted that, quote, being swept along is not enough, and that we are called to reach beyond the comfortable and the familiar in order to be witnesses to God's call for justice and peace. It is this distance between the demand for peace and justice that comes to us and the doubtful and trouble-filled achievement of peace and justice in this broken world that interests me both as a person of faith and as a rhetorician. For example, given the increasing number of executions taking place in Ohio, and the fact that 70% of Ohioans support the death penalty, and have so for the last 30 years, the chances of reversing Ohio policy on the death penalty seem extremely unlikely. Yet at Bluffton, here come the Social Work Club and the Peace Club and a bunch of area church members with petitions to sign, letters to write, and hope for a new day. Where does this motivation to act against all odds come? And how long can this hopeful action be sustained as the world keeps on being the world of sin and death? As a Christian, I am eager to understand how it is possible to live and express a life that is faithful to the way of Jesus Christ, even though the surrounding world rejects the meaning of such a life. As a rhetorician, I am curious about how people become persuaded to act with rega without regard to popularity, likely outcomes, or plausible accounts of effectiveness. In particular, as a scholar who was trained to regard rhetoric through an Aristotelian lens as an art of the possible, I am intrigued with how audiences become convinced to act on behalf of the unlikely and the seemingly impossible. During the past 15 years, a good deal of my research has focused specifically on the question of how Christian pacifists 
such as those in the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, have been able to sustain a commitment to nonviolence, especially when this conviction is unpopular in the surrounding culture, which it usually is. This evening, I will say more about the history of these strategies, but for now, I will note three primary approaches in the Mennonite Church to sustaining our commitment to peace. Some have followed the traditional Mennonite habit of withdrawing into rule-governed, separated communities safe from the temptations of an imperialist consumer culture. Others have sought to explain and follow pacifist convictions in pragmatist terms, borrowed from the social movement leaders like Gandhi and King. And thus, uh, these folks seek social and political transformation in the world through peace and social justice activism. An increasingly vocal faction is urging the church to claim or reclaim an evangelical identity that roots peaceful witness in the grace of Jesus Christ. A forthcoming book by Mennonite Church USA Executive Director Irvin Stutzman reviews this transition among Mennonites from, withdraw from withdrawal to a socially active posture and recommends in conclusion an evangelical identity. In this lecture, I am offering a qualified argument on behalf of an evangelical Mennonite peace witness, although it is apparent to me that the historical and sociological data largely support the view that most popular forms of evangelicalism tend to undermine traditional Mennonite pacifism. Without citing all the data, I can point to the fact that those Mennonite denominations that are most visibly identified with American evangelicalism such as the Mennonite Brethren, the Brethren in Christ, and the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches are also those with the lowest number of members supporting the peace position. Moreover, in the early 20th, 21st century where we find ourselves uh, in North America, evangelical Christians are among those believers most visibly identified with the American military establishment who have voiced the strongest support for American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and who often embrace an aggressive and God-identified nationalism. So my argument today is both that evangelical theology poses a profound challenge to Anabaptist peace convictions, and also my argument is that accepting this challenge is essential to renewing biblical peace convictions in both the Mennonite church and the Christian church as a whole. Put more succinctly, evangelical theology, when rightly understood, offers a way for peace to be practiced, not just as an art of the possible, but also as an expression of the impossible. In this presentation, I will, I will respond to the challenge of evangelical theology in two ways. First, I will explore the relationship between God's grace and God's command as found in the theology of Karl Barth and as qualified by his Mennonite student, John Howard Yoder. Second, I will consider three ways that God's grace is manifested in a full-bodied evangelical presentation of the gospel of peace. So, God's grace as God's command. The great Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth is said to have summarized the thesis of his 12 volumes and 9,000 pages of church dogmatics with the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For Bart, this love and grace of God as manifested in Jesus Christ and revealed 
in the scriptures calls into question all of our human efforts to define goodness and right action apart from the word and will and grace of God. The demand of conscience, such as we heard at Bluffton from Sister Helen a few weeks ago, is not an experience that we human beings dredge up from within our own clever or enlightened minds by anticipating consequences or doing a cost-benefit analysis or asking what we would wish for every other human being to do in every such case. The call to righteousness is instead a command that comes from the God of Jesus Christ. Our experience of incompetence in the face of this call is precisely the space of grace, the location in which our willing obedience is made available to the love and power of God as manifested in Jesus Christ. God calls us to actions for which we feel ill-equipped so that we can yield our lives to God's graceful action in our lives and in our world. By contrast, it is when we consider ourselves capable of addressing the world's wrongs with our own strength and skill and wisdom that we presume, like Adam and Eve, to make decisions about good and evil that rightly belong to God alone, and we act in disobedience rather than in obedience to the command of God. In Barth's uh, analysis, the brokenness of this world is directly related to the human tendency to assert moral competence over that which it is not the human place to assert. Whether we consider it to be our moral decision to enforce a no-fly zone over Libya with Tomahawk missiles, or to decide which criminals do not deserve to live, or whether we buy a Glock for the purposes of self-defense, we act as if we are the masters of our destiny and the architects of our salvation rather than God. In fact, for Bart, the entire modern ethical enterprise by which human beings presume to apply self-evident criteria for the good to the difficult choices that they face is a sinful and disobedient assertion of human autonomy from the creator and sustainer of the universe. What we humans call ethics is in fact disobedience to the command of God on Bart's view because of the presumption in ethics that we can figure out the good. But then, what is the command of God and how do we listen to it if not by simply following our best human instincts or carefully designed ethical systems? According to Barth, this command has come to us in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As he puts it, quote, we must seek this command only in what happened in Bethlehem, at Capernaum and Tiberias, in Gethsemane and on Golgotha, and in the garden of Joseph of Arimathea. In this event, God uttered his command. Barth is saying that in the Christ event, God's grace comes to us as a word of free acceptance and definitive command, both things. God both accepts us in Christ Jesus and commands us to accept our neighbor in the same way that God has accepted us. The grace of God toward us also defines our relationship to the neighbor. This grace toward the neighbor cannot be produced by our own ethical effort, however. The grace we offer is the grace we have already received from God in Jesus Christ. 
It is not I, but Christ working in me, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. When I am weak, then am I strong. From this perspective, both the traditional Mennonite temptation to defend pacifism as a nonconformist privilege, as well as the modern activist temptation to promote nonviolence as pragmatic policy, run the risk of becoming exhibitions of self-righteousness rather than displays of God's grace. Of course, this is true of every human effort to do the right thing and to be a good person. The command of God, though, is not to be good, but rather to receive the goodness of Jesus Christ as our own goodness, given but not imposed. Furthermore, from this point of view, Mennonites and other peace churches are not morally superior because of our peace teachings or avoidance of military service. More particularly, the peace position, which makes avoidance of military service a test of authentic discipleship, is not a morally superior stance. It may be a faithful response to the command of God, and I believe that it is, but it does not improve the moral status of its adherence before God. Jesus Christ has already done that for us, whether we accept the peace position or not. Moreover, all of our efforts to defend peace are failures of sorts, whether they involve excommunicating military members of churches, as Mennonites have done in the past, or refusing to play the national anthem, as some Mennonite colleges still do. Of course, contained in these failures are expressions of obedience to the command of God, that God is able to redeem, even when we are unable to resist using our human power to secure what only God can give, God still blesses and corrects our sinful and flawed human responses to God's command. So in this sense, making conscientious objection a test of church membership or refusing to play the national anthem can be understood as a grace redeemed, even if somewhat sinful response to God's command by which that command continues to be heard, even if in a flawed form, among us today. And we could even say that arguments about those things are contexts in which God's command can be heard. In the final instance, though, the only peace that is secure is the peace that Jesus Christ gives, and this is not a peace that we can save. The peace of Jesus Christ can only be offered by us in the same way that it has been offered to us as an act of free grace, not of ethical anxiety or imposition. There are two questions that arise from this account of Barth's view of ethics as human determination by the graceful command of God in relationship to Anabaptist peace convictions. First, how does an evangelical ethics rooted in God's grace simply avoid, or how does it avoid simply accepting the violence of the world as given rather than striving for God's peaceful kingdom? Secondly, how would Anabaptist peace teaching look if it was understood as evangelical teaching? Tonight, I want to review a bit of the uh, Reformation debates between Anabaptists and Protestant reformers to explore this question. For this morning, I will simply acknowledge the way in which Barth's Mennonite student, John Howard Yoder, qualified and expanded Barth's understanding of grace. In 1973, Yoder published his Politics of Jesus, 
a book that took the social ethics guild by storm, transformed many withdrawn Mennonites into social activists, uh, and turned many Christian social activists into frustrated Mennonite camp followers. The book argues, of course, that Jesus was a political person and that in his life, teachings, death, and resurrection, we find a social practice of both confrontation and loving service to others that challenges the politics of empire and privilege. However, in a neglected chapter of this book, chapter 11, entitled Justification by Grace Through Faith, Yoder makes an evangelical argument that connects the politics of Jesus with the commanding grace of God. He writes in this chapter that it is the good news that my enemy and I are united through no merit or work of our own in a new humanity that forbids henceforth, and I'm using his words here, that forbids henceforth my ever taking his life in my hands. Here Yoder is connecting peace between human beings to peace with God through the doctrine of justification. Just as we are made right with God by the work of Jesus Christ accomplished by God, so are we reconciled with our enemies apart from our own effort by the power of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Yoder elaborated on this same claim later in another book entitled He Came Preaching Peace where he wrote that, quote, the gospel is not that war is sin, that also is true, but alone it would not be the gospel. The gospel is that the war is over. The gospel is that everyone being loved by God must be my beloved too, even if they consider me their enemy, even if their interests clash with mine. Yoder modifies Barth's argument about God's grace as our command in a characteristic Anabaptist fashion. Like early Anabaptist writers critiquing the Protestant reformers, he insists not just that God's grace does bear fruit in the lives of believers, but also that it must do so. Moreover, the test of whether it has done so is whether or not enemies are reconciled, whether or not believers extend toward their enemies the same nonviolent grace that God extended toward us when we were God's enemies. The Anabaptists claim in evangelical language, in other words, is that God offers God's righteousness in Jesus Christ as a gift, makes us righteous, and accomplishes righteousness in our lives only insofar as we are prepared to respond in obedience to God's command as it was manifested in Jesus Christ. God does not coerce us into not coercing others. God does not use violence to stop our violence. But this same posture of merciful grace, not imposing, but nevertheless persistent and patient, is the posture of righteousness that is expressed toward our neighbors in our lives when we are obedient to God's command. This love that God has extended to us and that works in us by definition does not destroy the enemy. If Karl Barth and John Howard Yoder are right, the question that tempts me as a rhetorician, and perhaps us as Mennonites, is the wrong question. From Aristotle and even Augustine, we learn to ask whether the message of salvation or social change has been successfully adapted to the given audience. Have we been effective in our words and deeds? Will the world change because we have spoken or acted? The gospel question, however, is not one of human success, but rather whether the word of God 
has been proclaimed and heard in word and deed. The question is the correspondence of human words and deeds with God's word and deed in Jesus Christ. Thus, whenever people speak or act in accordance with God's love, the good news is being proclaimed and God's command is being followed. Insofar as this is happening, the righteousness of God is not only imputed but expressed, and what was previously impossible now becomes possible by the mercy and grace of God. And people show up to protest the death penalty, work to live in peace with our ravaged planet, struggle against our own addictions and compulsions, and attend to the needs of strangers near at hand and far away, even when it seems futile to do so. Such an expression of righteousness that embraces even the enemy is the ground for a new political community known as the church, in which former enemies are reconciled and the new humanity with a new point of view is assumed. Assembled by God's grace, the church proclaims in its life and worship the graceful and peaceful command of God for the world. For an account of the ecclesial proclamation that assembles such a body, we need to turn away from Aristotle and toward Paul, away from questions of effectiveness and toward questions of faithfulness. Tonight I will speak of an emerging rhetorical theory based in Pauline theology. For now I want to highlight three ways in which this God-graced assembly of defenseless Christians proclaim the gospel of peace in word and deed. First, the church and its members proclaim that through Jesus Christ, God has reconciled us. This accomplished, although not yet altogether realized, reconciliation is the work of God in Jesus Christ, and it is accomplished in both a vertical and a horizontal direction. It is not our job to achieve reconciliation with either God or our enemies. This has already been achieved by the loving and graceful righteousness of Jesus Christ. What we do as members of Jesus Christ is to gratefully make this already accomplished reconciliation visible. There is no need to defend ourselves from our enemies, either by weapons or by arguments, because the God of Jesus Christ already defends and reconciles us. Second, this accomplished reconciliation is part of God's larger plan by which all of humanity has been created and chosen by God to participate in the work of God's salvation. In Bardian terms, this is the universally offered, although not yet universally received, election of all human beings. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish. God's salvation is offered as an already done deal. All are reconciled and all are saved if only we will receive this salvation. The hell of this world is the hell of denial and rejection of God's good gifts. A hell that is unsustainable as elected humanity joins God's mission. Therefore, it is not our job to save the world, whether that job is to save it from war or climate change or from sin and unbelief. That salvation is the work of God in Jesus Christ to which we join our life and work as members of Jesus Christ. What we do as members of Jesus Christ is proclaim the good news in word and deed that God has saved us, is saving everyone. 
So when we recycle and reduce our energy usage and protest war and capital punishment and build housing for the poor and visit the imprisoned and plant new churches, we are proclaiming this good news that God's salvation is for the whole world and it has been accomplished for the whole world. These words and deeds will not save the world and we do not impose them on the world against its will. But deeds such as these are our expression of the hope of eternal and universal salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, who we believe is the only hope of this world. Finally, in the peaceful assembly of the church and in its scattering, this accomplished reconciliation and universal election can actually be tasted and seen. As reconciled and chosen by God, formerly alienated human beings are assembled together in the body of Christ, where the grace and peace of God through Jesus Christ is proclaimed and offered for the world. This assembly is called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately, as John Howard Yoder has put it. The cosmopolitan and cross-cultural political body of the church contains not only diverse classes and social groups, but contrasting and even mutually threatening ideological commitments. In the letters of the Apostle Paul, which describe this assembly, we find an articulation of the church as a unity that holds together contrasting and conflicting perspectives without synthesizing them. There are many gifts, but the same spirit, many works, but the same God. The capacity for members of this body to entertain diverse and challenging perspectives is a sign of the body's reliance on the work of Jesus Christ and not our own skilled or powerful maneuvering to keep the bond of peace. Within the life of this body, we learn that our response to God's command, even when it fails or is misguided and sinful, can best be corrected or redeemed when our response is offered defenselessly with an acknowledgement and even appreciation of other points of view. I conclude today with three stories that illustrate for me the way that the gospel of peace is proclaimed as good news rather than as ethics or law. Lynn Lichty grew up in the First Mennonite Church of Bern, Indiana and came of age during World War II. Although there was a strong tradition of conscientious objection to war in his family, he opted to accept an army assignment as a non-combatant rather than to follow the traditional Mennonite route of performing alternative service in a CPS camp. Because he refused to carry a gun, though, during basic training, Lichty was subject to ridicule and soon realized that he wasn't, as he put it, in the right place. His decision to serve as a non-combatant while refusing to carry a gun is a witness heard by his grandchildren, one of them current Bluffton University student Blake Zikafus. Last semester in a public speaking class, Blake passed along this witness by praising her grandfather's life during a ceremonial speech. In the speech, Blake said of her grandfather, quote, every single day of his life, my grandfather used Jesus as the example for the way in which he should live his life. Her grandfather has left Blake with many wonderful memories for which she expressed gratitude. Blake testified that Lynn Lichty's life and story has been an inspiration for her and that his refusal to accept a weapon is one of the bravest things a person can do. Lynn Lichty's deeds and Blake Zikafus's words proclaim the gospel of peace. 
Sam Park is a 2001 Bluffton University graduate who grew up in the Oak Grove Mennonite Church in West Liberty, Ohio. He joined the Army upon graduating from Bluffton because military service had always intrigued him and he was looking for a way to pay off his college loans. The September 11 attacks of 2001 strengthened the appeal of the military as an opportunity to be of service to others. Sam says that the Mennonite Church's teaching against violence had convinced him to be personally a pacifist, although he had decided that he was willing to use force to defend someone else against harm. At the same time, he realized that he did not want to have anything to do with killing anyone, even after he was in the army. Because of the respect for life he had learned, Sam was hesitant to use violence, even when, according to the rules of engagement, he would have been justified to act with lethal force. He says he is glad he did not have a more aggressive stance in those situations that could easily have ended in tragedy. Sam quickly realized that the Iraq War was a profound waste of life and resources and that he wanted to get out of the army as quickly as he could. At the end of each day, Sam prayed to God to redeem his time in Iraq. After being discharged from the army, Sam returned to his home community and church, where he works with his church youth group as a sponsor and a volunteer for mission trips, fundraisers, and work projects. Sam says, Christianity is about service to others and being Jesus to the world. He hopes to model this life of peaceful service, service to other young people. Sam Park's words and deeds proclaim the gospel of peace. Sister Helen Prejean, a member of the Sisters of St. Joseph, was invited to become a pen pal of an inmate on death row named Elmo Patrick Sanier back in 1982. As part of her response to the call and command of God, she befriended this man on death row who had been convicted of rape and murder. She visited him in prison and prayed with him. She helped him get more competent legal help. She supported him before the pardon board. At the pardon board, she met the families of the victims who were hurt that she was providing spiritual support to the killer of their children without having listened to their side of the story. She apologized to the families of the victims for not having asked earlier to hear of their experiences. She wished she had talked to them earlier. And she also continued to provide spiritual guidance to Pat Sonnier and ultimately witnessed his execution. Sister Helen's witness amidst all the anger and hurt and controversy that, that surrounds the practice of state-sponsored execution is that the death penalty is wrong and must be stopped. In her book, Dead Man Walking, she writes the following sentences. If someone I love should be killed, I know I would feel rage, loss, grief, helplessness, perhaps for the rest of my life. It would be arrogant to think I can predict how I would respond to such a disaster. But Jesus Christ, whose way of life I try to follow, refused to meet hate and violence with violence. I pray for the strength to be like him. Sister Helen's words and deeds proclaim the gospel of peace. These witnesses to the gospel of peace do not fit the conventional pattern of peace, church, conscientious objection, and pacifism. But they each responded to the command of God as expressed in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They each displayed dependence on the righteousness of God and not on their own good works and were thus open to correction 
and the discovery of not being in the right place. These lives witness through words and deeds that God has reconciled all things, that human beings are chosen by God to make that reconciliation visible in the world, and that this reconciled life is expressed most visibly in the body of Christ, the church, from which these witnesses first heard the command of God proclaimed. How can we sustain commitment to causes of peace and justice that seem unlikely to succeed by the world's standards? By rooting our activism and involvement in the same dependence on God's grace and righteousness that Lynn Lichty, Sam Park, and Sister Helen manifested in their lives. For when we do this, when we display our social activism and civic engagement as obedience to the grace we have received from God, then the object of our activism has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. That is the good news whose proclamation can sustain a life of gracious social action amidst a blinded and still disobedient world. Thank you.